A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I talk to Anoush Shikalian and Stephen Bush about the aftermath of the autumn statement, and then Anoush joins us again with Barbara Speed to talk about the tampon tax. Plus, for perhaps one week only, Stephen's joke of the week. Then Jason Cowley talks to John Gray about our cover story on ISIS and the state. we're joining you the day after the autumn statement in which George Osborne made a series of announcements, pulled some rabbits out of a hat and various other political cliches. I'm joined by Stephen Bush, our Staggers editor, and Anusha Kalian, our deputy web editor. So first, for anybody who's been um, under a rock, Stephen, what were what were the rabbits? So the kind of big, big rabbits were uh, the U-turn on tax credits. Well, it's a partial U-turn. In that he's basically said that there will be no cuts to tax credits uh, because it doesn't matter because tax credits will vanish when uh, universal credit is fully implemented. Um, it's is... quite a good illustration, that, isn't it, of the fact that a U-turn is less embarrassing than continuing to stick to something just blindly. Oh, it's always, it is always the right course to U-turn. Um, Andrew Adonis has a great phrase here, good governments U-turn and U-turn often. In this case, a bad government U-turns and U-turns very hard. If you take, say, the poll tax or the Iraq war or, you know, yeah, like there are... Yeah, or any anything where yeah where the government was yeah had a lot of opposition at the beginning. It got what at every point up until the point the policy was implemented, mm. it would have been easier to U-turn um, because once you yeah like no one goes into the ballot box five years from now, two years from now, yeah whenever the next election uh, is in any of these circumstances and goes oh the government would have done this awful thing. Mm. They go oh who cares? Yeah, people care about what governments actually what i really like is all the people who support osborne now go very solemnly going the best thing about osborne of course is he's not ideological which is a lie he's incredibly ideological (laughs) he's a pragmatist and this redefinition of the word pragmatist to mean has realized he has made a giant cock up has rectified that rather than blindly clinging onto it which is you know which is the nicest possible gloss that you can put on that right Uh, yeah and weirdly it's lucky for him that so many people opposed his policy to cut tax credits because it means that Labour can't take full credit for his U-turn because it was sort of roundly criticised you had you know everyone from Boris Johnson to the Sun saying that it was a bad idea so weirdly that worked in his favour he seems to be riding on a wave of luck at the moment so also um, (laughs) apart from that Stephen we had the um, I mean I think Philip Collins in the Times was very interesting on the 
police number cut, saying that this is a classic budget autumn statement trick. You say that you're going to do something really, really bad. Everybody piles into it and has a real go at it, and then you don't do it. And then the status quo, by that, you know, by contrast, then begins to look actually really appealing. And that was kind of what he did with police numbers, right? Yeah, because uh, we shouldn't forget that the police were effectively asking for more money at the start of the summer. Uh, and now they have the same, effectively, amount of money, and everyone is, well, not everyone, obviously, some people, including many uh, podcast listeners, are not relaxed about the police uh, having as much money as they do at the moment. But the status quo endures, and that is seen as a, a big victory by lots of people. And it's kind of shot Andy Burnham's fox. Um, he is having a terrible 2015. I'm really enjoying... That's one of the really odd things about the um, the budget, is it does bring out the kind of... There's a lot of foxes being shot, rabbits being pulled out of hats. I think maybe actually what we should try and do next year is try and introduce a few new animals into the uh, budget and the autumn <laughs> statement vocabulary. So well, if someone messes up a policy, well, he's called that badger. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so um, if any of our listeners would like to write in with suggestions of other great animal metaphors we could try and get everyone to use, because clearly everyone's absolutely desperate to do it. Um, Anoush, was there anything else that caught your eye? Um, yeah, what was interesting was that, um, some of the things that George Osborne was saying about prisons, I thought. Um, so they're closing Holloway Prison, which is a massive, famous, culturally interesting, historic prison in London. Um, and it's part of what my, sort of Michael Gove's revolution, as he calls everything that he does, like he was in the Department for Education. Now he is in the Ministry of Justice and he's um, using the same kind of language about transforming um justice policy and actually it's very popular at the moment with the people in that sector I've, yeah I think it's very popular be- well but 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 it's well it, there is a big problem with closing Holloway Prison mm. um, which is that it is I mean well, the reason it's being closed is the same way same reason that closing it is a problem so it is in North London it's between you know it's near Caledonian Road tube station which is only one stop up for King's Cross this is you know absolutely prime you know god knows how many like, yuppie two bedroom flats you can build on that on that land so they are going to make an enormous amount of money by selling that off the problem is that the Howard Eagle points out that the new prisons that they're going to build for women are mm. going to be in Surrey and this is a huge problem particularly you know female prisoners often most of them in prison for non-violent offenses you know lots of them have children and families and it's going to be really hard for them to get and, and see them so I uh, one thing I think that everyone in the sector has been saying is it would be good if they were closing down Holloway Prison because they were considering more, you know, imprisoning fewer women, basically. Yeah. But that's not necessarily uh, where it looks at that that policy's going. No, it's, also, sorry. Sorry. it's also a very atypical uh, victory. So the, the announcement is we're closing down Victorian prisons, but it's actually an entirely renovated uh, Victorian prison. It was rebuilt... In, t- in its entirety in the 1980s, which is probably why it'll be so easy to turn into nice flats. Um, whereas your kind of, your genuine Victorian prisons, like, say, Strangeways uh, in Manchester, is unlikely to be sold off and remains these sort of huge, big universities of crime where people get shut off, lose skills. Um, yeah, but, you know, Michael Gove is actually saying lots of exciting things, so we, we hope that it will... Well, I think he's in this, it's this kind of, you know, only Nixon can go to China thing of the fact that nobody thinks that he's this kind of, you know, softly lefty, bleeding heart liberal. So he actually has kind of got the cover to do things that, you know, Ken Clark, with his much more soft, you know, softer reputation, found very difficult to kind of get past mm. the, the Tory base, really. Yeah, exactly. And when Ken Clark was trying to reduce um, prison numbers of prisoners, um, he was scuppered by um, the controversy that he sort of caused for himself by defining rape and that kind of thing mm, yeah. when you remember he landed himself in a lot of hot water and david cameron in the end was just like okay 
no, just stop. <laughs> Whereas Michael Gove has the um, respect from the right of the party that Ken Clark never did. And the one thing I want to finish up by talking about, Stephen, is um, adult social care, which is not the sexiest of subject, but an incredibly important one. So care budgets mostly are paid by councils and have been incredibly cut back um, over the last five years. There's now a kind of little dodge scheme going on with um, council ta- councils being able to levy more council tax, right? Explain this to me in words of one or two syllables. So basically councils can now put 2% on council tax to meet their social care costs. Uh, whereas before, uh, Eric Pickles had introduced a thing where you couldn't increase ta- council tax by that amount without having a referendum on it first. Obviously having a referendum is A, expensive, but B, no one is ever going to win a <laughs> referendum on can I put your taxes up, YN. Um, so it... It's good in a way. The problem arises, and if you have a large amount of social care costs, right, either if you have a lot of people who um, they've perhaps been uh, moved out of, say, the centre of a city to a poorer suburb because they have long-term mental health issues or they have learning uh, disabilities or they are incredibly old or suffering from dementia or any of those kind of reasons why you need social care... Those are all groups of people who, for one reason or another, don't pay council tax. Pensioners don't pay council tax. Um, people who have long-term mental illnesses tend not to pay council tax because they tend not to have jobs. Um, so the concern is it creates a situation where... Um, so well-off councils with few yeah. people who need care will actually do quite well out of this but or, or actually be fine to meet it, but people in other situations won't. I think that's really, And it's also ring-fenced entirely for adult social care, right, which means yeah. that chi- child social care is, is, is not protected from, from the otherwise m- massive cuts that are happening to local government over the next five yeah, years. Yeah, and it will basically mean what will happen with children's services is exactly what you're seeing with health. And basically, if you get sick and you go into a hospital or you go into a school, then you go like, oh, austerity doesn't seem to have happened all that much. But if you need after an after-school club or you need to join a... Yeah, we like so a subsidised gym, for example, is a really important bit of health spending that most local authorities do. Um, and some people who can only afford to join a subsidised gym, well, that saves money for the taxpayer long term because they're less likely to get heart disease, mm. certain types of diabetes, etc., etc., etc. And all of that um, is is going to continue to be cut. They have now handed councils the ability to keep the revenue from assets when they sell them off. Um, which is good in a way because it means some councils will be able to shield the rest of But of course, once you run out of assets, you can't But that's sell like them running again. through reserves, yeah. isn't it? I mean, so that's one, you know, when David Cameron wrote his famous letter to his council in Whitney saying, have you thought about selling off expensive property? And they went, yeah, yeah, we've, yeah, we thought about that. Yeah, we've, we've, we've thought about that. And then, and then we've done that, actually, is what we've done. There is a problem that that's a, a stopgap solution. Well, we'll um, pick up another issue in a minute. But for now, it wouldn't be complete without discussing Labour's response, um, which I think it's fair to say the coverage has been entirely dominated by John McDonnell's decision to wave Mao's little red book at George Osborne, saying, you know, you're very close to China, maybe you'd like to read this, throwing it down on the dispatch box. Osborne, in rare comedy zinger moment, came back with, oh, is this your personal signed copy? And generally the reaction has been, if you're a chancellor or shadow chancellor who, who you know, the weaknesses that the Tories are trying to exploit his painting, he was cl- pretty close to a communist, you know, certainly, you know, stridently left-wing. Is it really a good idea to have a photo of you brandishing Chairman Mao's Little Red Book. 
Stephen, um, McDonnell has been on uh, TV this morning saying that voters don't really care about this. They'll see past the media spin. Is that true? No, of course it's not true. Um, I mean, people, people in general, the media, everyone cares more about trivia than they do about the ins and outs of policies. And for any of our listeners getting irritated about that, I challenge you to tell me without Googling what was the name of the general who was on every front page other than the mails the, days of pig, the day of Piggate. You don't remember. And that guy was the... I didn't even remember there was a general on the front yeah, page. This, this was the guy who said that um, oh, yeah. there would have to be a mutiny if uh, if Corbyn won. Now, some would argue a mutiny is a bigger story than the Prime Minister potentially putting his penis in a pig. But <laughs> Not for the pig. But Yeah, well, for, <laughs> indeed, not for the pig. But, but we all talked about it a lot more because people are more interested in gossip. Um, but also the fact yeah. that it plays into... Things yeah. become emblematic, don't they? That's yeah, exactly. the problem. If he'd picked up any other book, if he'd picked up a, a Chinese poet, if you know, or if he'd picked up a kind of copy of Yung Cheng's Wild Swans, any of those <laughs> things would have been fine. But the problem was that it punched a bruise. It was something that, pe- that you know, it was a message that Tories are already trying to get on. You know, this guy is so left-wing, he's basically a communist. And then he gave them that thing that they needed. You know, if he'd held up... Um, you know, book by Oswald Mosley, no, it wouldn't have worked the same. That yeah. was the yeah. And I think even if he had just quoted it, it wouldn't have been half as bad. But because he, there are now there is now footage of him holding the book and waving it in Parliament, that can be used forevermore against him. Mm. And also, just like so obviously, well, okay, so I was going to say obviously there is a an open debate about whether or not it is good or bad for Britain to have the relationship with China than it does. Uh, obviously, John Ross, who's one of um, uh, Corbyn's sort of strongest allies and a kind of close, closely within the orbit of the Corbyn circle, thinks that China is a very good thing. Um, others disagree. But it's not really electorally relevant. What he needed to do is stand up and go, ha, 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 you've done a U-turn, I win, and basically sit back down again. Yeah, I think yeah. that's I think that's a fair point. I mean, the, the China discussion is really interesting, and we've covered it a lot. Again, I suspect we've when we covered that two weeks ago, or whenever it was when the Chinese state visit was happening, that attracted rather less attention than people complaining that people are upset about the Little Red Book incident, mm. because it's you know because it was it was just a fact. It wasn't a way to sort of signal your political allegiance about anything. But um, yeah, I think that that's I think that Labour's response could have been a lot sharper. I saw um, Yvette Cooper and Chris Leslie kind of going through the figures because that's one of the things that you know you absolutely have to do and go and find. I mean, I remember the budget in the summer. You know, it was this idea that the tax credits versus the uh, minimum wage. You know, you, Osborne was giving with one hand and taking away with the other, and it took quite a while for people to look and scrutinise the small print and the IFS to look at the figures and go, "Oh, actually, this does not in any way count. One of these does not cancel the other out at all." And that's, a, I mean, it's, credit to John McDonnell. Until, until that point, he was doing quite well, and it is a, about the most thankless task in politics. Well, the thing he's done, this is incredibly insidery, but the thing he's done that I think is a mistake is he's abandoned the. Um, the post-autumn statement kind of late afternoon briefing. And this is something that Ed Balls always used to do and Chris Leslie would do because the Shadow Chancellor can only ever get done over and the set piece because they literally have to react live. Whereas if you do another briefing at five to all of the to the press, you can get your message out. It was that briefing under Chris Leslie was the first time that the Labour politician went, oh, those tax credit cuts... They're going to be a problem because people forget. Although under Harriet Harman they oppose, they said they weren't going to oppose the three-child limit. They were opposed to the bulk of the tax credit cuts, and um, that's the kind of detail you can get out. I always really enjoyed Ed Balls's uh, posting briefing because they were really interesting. Yeah, he had this huge brain, 
And it, it allowed, was wonk heaven, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was wonk heaven. But it I was, think that that's something yeah. that people, if they, if they, if you're watching the speech on TV with the BBC kind of flashing the main points at the bottom, or if you're watching it live on Twitter, because you know if you follow the kind of a decent spread of political journalists, you can very quickly see what the big themes are. Sitting in the chamber, just listening to the words happen, and you don't get a chance to go, hang on, what was that bit? Let's scroll back. What did he say just then? Mm. I just think people maybe don't kind of grasp how tough it is to pick out the the you know the needles in that haystack live yeah. in real time and i suspect the reason why he didn't do that briefing is he's never done it before he do, you know we forget that the reason why ed balls knows it's hard is he used to advise gordon brown the reason why chris leslie knew it was hard is he used to advise gordon brown the reason why Avec and this is kind of the, the the it's the first time in 20 years that a brownite hasn't been in the treasury team uh, for the Labour Party. No, more than that, because Gordon was uh, chief set before, or shadow chief set before. So they understand how difficult it is. Whereas I think John McDonald sees it, goes, oh, you just stand up, you make a few jokes, and it's fine. But actually, you do need that bit afterwards when you can sit back through the fine print, call all the journalists back and go, actually, I know I stood up and said this was the important thing, mm-hmm. but the really important thing is is this. Um, and, yeah, it's... But, you know, I mean, that is one of the things where I think everyone thinks they will... They have to get a bit better at that. Well, I do think that there's a, there are two lessons, kind of, from particularly from that poll, the YouGov poll that came out saying that 66% of Labour members think Corbyn's doing well, 86% of people who vote for him think he's doing well. I think there's a point now where if you're in the PLP and you're not, you know, on your kind of crazy kamikaze mission, you think, well, this is probably a very good, a, a period of silence is probably my best time now. But equally well, I think from the point of view of the leadership, the, the strategy of slagging off the media and saying no one listens to them has now been tested to destruction and mm. it is a very limited strategy you know you might hate the media you might think they're all a bunch of bastards who misinterpret everything you say but they exist they are a fact and and mm. i think and you complaining. can you can use them he's been complaining about um the press spinning the mal stunt but he could have spun the press he could have done that briefly. Well, that's the bit I don't have any sympathy for because, you know, you're basically people are writing up something that you did that you wanted them to write up. Exactly. It's just they're not writing the thing that you wanted. <laughs> so, well, no one, you know, no one gets that apart from, you know, J.K. Rowling and her copy approval. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a weird note to end on. Anyway, thank you very much, Anoush and Stephen. I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And we host the New Statesman's pop culture podcast, Seriously. This week, we talked about horror parody show Scream Queens, the film of the Alan Bennett play Lady in the Van, and 90s children's dog-themed TV show Wishbone. You can find us at newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y or on iTunes or on the podcatcher of your choice. Hello, I'm Jason Cowley, editor of The New Statesman, and with me today is John Gray, political philosopher and writer, and one of our favourite writers on The New Statesman, John. You've written this week's um, cover story, very provocative cover story, in which essentially, at the very beginning of the piece, you announce two things. One, that the state, as you see it in the aftermath of the Paris attacks, and more pressingly, the the rise of Islamic State, you say the state is returning to its primary function, which is one of providing security. That's right. And you also say that the liberal order in Europe is not only crumbling, it's already history. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? And then I know you bring Hobbes into your argument. Mm. So tell us a little bit about what what, what you're thinking. I think the most fundamental lesson of the Paris attacks um, is that liberal societies 
underestimated their own fragility because they thought a certain narrative of freedom was spreading throughout the world. In other words, they thought of themselves as um, in the avant-garde of historical development. There might be problems, there might be difficulties, there might be periods of regression or uh, even periods in which um, freedom wasn't spreading or was reversed in some countries, as some would say happened in uh, post-communist Russia. But on the whole, freedom was spreading everywhere. So they allowed this their sense of the um, uh, exceptional character of liberal societies, the fact that there have been very few in history and they've never extended very far, to be blurred by the sense that these liberal societies were actually a prototype for the whole world. And although there was perhaps nothing inevitable about it, it would take time, there'd be difficulties, there'd be setbacks, there was a kind of ongoing movement of um, liberalization afoot in the world. And that led them to forget uh, a crucial fact, which I think has been um, almost um, uh, put out of mind by contemporary liberal thinkers, um, which is that uh, freedom itself um, is fragile because it depends on security. It depends. Freedom is not a kind of normal condition for humankind, uh, which comes into being as soon as you get rid of tyranny. Um, when you get rid of tyranny, what very commonly happens uh, and has happened in Iraq and Libya and uh, to some extent in Syria, at least to the extent that um, uh, the Assad regime has been weakened, you very often get um, a period of anarchy, which in its own way can be just as um, uh, inimical to freedom. So what they forgot was that freedom, far from being a kind of uh, a universally desired uh, condition which is in some deep sense humanly normal, is an artifact, it's an artificial condition created by uh, state power. It exists in the, the shadow or the shelter of the state. But when the state forgets its central functions of providing security, of providing safety from attack, of curbing violence, and uh, uh, then um, it becomes vulnerable. <clears throat> it it I, becomes vulnerable to attack. And I think this liberal dream of a form of political order, which can be sustained um, only or principally by um, a commitment to freedom, was embodied in the European Union. Yeah, but John, the European Union hasn't collapsed. I mean, no. it's, under, it's under great pressure, perhaps. It hasn't collapsed. Pressure. We'll and liberal the, values won't disappear. But yeah, what we'll had the Eurozone crisis, and now, now clearly the refugee crisis is yeah. putting enormous pressure yeah. on Schengen, which seems to me... Well, that I think is one of the key, key uh, uh, elements of the present situation, because I don't see how Schengen can survive the current terrorist crisis against the background of the, the migrant crisis. And, I mean, the idea that the migrant crisis and the terrorist crisis can be linked is, of course, um, controversial and very offensive to some people, including Barack Obama, who's dismissed it as hysterical and who's said, you know, are we to be afraid of uh, orphans and uh, three-year-old orphans and, and their mothers and so on. But, of course, uh, it does seem to be, uh, uh, if you think from a Hobbesian point of view, you only need a very small number of um, uh, ISIS supporters or jihadist militants to be among the million or more refugees, to be able to travel across Europe as, according to some reports, um, the uh, ringleader of the recent uh, attacks in Paris did, mm -hmm. from Greece uh, to France and commit the attacks. In other words, you have a situation in which, under Schengen, the borders of France are the perimeter of Greece. Uh, 
And this leads to a kind of rather interesting, if you like, theoretical result, which is that the European Union claims the prerogatives of statehood without being able to satisfy the primary function of the state, which is security, because, security. because it can't protect its perimeter border. That's not practical. Doesn't have a common defence policy. Doesn't have a defence policy. Doesn't have an army. Doesn't have an army. Can't do it. It's, it doesn't have the capacity and won't be able to do it in the foreseeable so, future. So but internally, it has a free zone, which means that anyone who passes through this very permeable border can go anywhere. And that means that the, the EU, far from being what many Eurosceptics think it is, which is a, 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 a super state in the, in the making, is a pseudo state. From the standpoint, the Hobbesian standpoint of providing security, can't do it. So that's why it's in a. So the, what's disappearing in Europe is not liberal values or even liberal societies. They'll survive. But the idea of an ideal transnational liberal order founded only on a common commitment to freedom is an illusion. And that's one of the illusions that I think Hobbes has thought is useful in puncturing. You return in your essay to, to Hobbes, who was born in 1588, mm. the year of the Spanish Armada and the invasion. Mm. Um, he lived for nearly, what, mm. more than 90 years. Mm. He lived through a period of convulsion and war, mm. the English Civil War, war in Europe. Mm. So he saw, in a sense, perpetual conflict. But John, how, when you talk about um, a sovereign political entity exists to secure the safety of its subjects, mm. now what do you think the state needs to do or will do in the weeks, months, years ahead? Do you think we're going to see a fundamentally different state in a, in a Western democracy such as Britain? The first thing that will happen in Europe is the reinstitution, I think, on a pretty well permanent basis of border controls by nation states, because given that the transnational European institutions constitute not a state but a pseudo-state and can't perform this function, it devolves back to nation states. Mm -hmm. And so that's probably the first thing that, that will happen. There may be, no doubt, lots more cooperation in intelligence and other areas uh, between these states than there's actually been up till now, because that's a clear failing that that's occurred. Um, uh, in Britain, I can see this crisis reinforcing the um, case that has been made uh, uh, for um, mass internet data collection. Mm. And so more, so more democratic acceptance of, of surveillance, greater surveillance, I think greater powers for the state. I think it'll, all, it'll go through in Britain um, without much difficulty now. Uh, and one of the um, uh, uh, arguments for that, I think, is that um, uh, if the state's primary function is to uh, protect the safety of its citizens, then uh, um, freedoms, our freedoms aren't a kind of... Um, a fixed set of harmonious liberties that join together and mm. interlock and dovetail, which is how most uh, contemporary liberals who are very much influenced by rights theory and mm. American theories of jurisprudence, they think of our freedoms as a kind of dovetailing set. They're fixed they all, and they all support each other. But in fact, in the real world, what actually happens outside the seminar room and the law court is that very often if you're um, governing a country, you have to choose. So you're talking about competing freedoms. Competing freedoms. And there will be some loss of freedom. Privacy, which is already, I think, heavily challenged, and may already be actually itself history as well. Mm. I mean, the, pri the, the privacy that existed prior to the internet uh, will be further um, invaded uh, 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 under comprehensive or mass collect uh, data surveillance. But I think there can be an argument for that. The argument for that is that although by itself it doesn't deal with many threats, it can't 
threats continuously uh, multiply, they, they proliferate, they, and they mutate continuously. If it can prevent even some of these episodes, then surely th there is at least something to be put in the balance there. Uh, and to reject this kind of um, uh, action by states out of hand seems to me to be a kind of um, unreal perspective. It, it, it's again the idea that ultimately um, uh, states exist to serve freedom, whereas the to embody freedom or, or, or a complex body of freedoms, whereas the Hobbesian perspective would say what, what states exist primarily for is to secure the peace and freedom is a, a byproduct of yeah. that. It seems to me very easy to destroy a state, mm. as we saw mm. in Iraq, we've yes. seen more recently in Libya, yes. now in Syria, yes. but extremely difficult to recreate a state. Or put Nobody a state knows back how together. to do it. Nobody has to do it. Now, you've been very sceptical about liberal, so-called liberal intervention in very Iraq, Libya and elsewhere. Yes. But as I understand it from what you've written this mm -hmm. week, you are open to some form of greater intervention against ISIS in Syria. And now David Cameron will once again mm. return to the Commons to try and get mm. authorization for mm. British military strikes against ISIS in, in mm. Syria, maybe as part of a larger mm. multinational force, perhaps even including the Russians mm. working closer with um, France and the United mm. States as well as the United Kingdom. What, what is your sense that, 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 that the British should do vis-a-vis -vis ISIS in Syria. Well, you're right, Jason, that I was more than a sceptic. I was adamantly opposed to the Iraq war, and I've never reluctant to... My first um, statement of opposition to the Iraq war was in the New Statesman in 2002, that's to say a year before the war was actually launched, and I was adamant. I thought it would be a catastrophe. I thought it would be ruinous. I thought it could lead to what I described in the New Statesman as Chechen-like anarchy. Mm. That has happened. Mm. So I don't reluct on any of that, but that's water under the bridge, even though in those interventions which destroyed, weakened the state of Iraq, destroyed the state in Libya and semi-destroyed the state in Syria, are among the conditions which have allowed ISIS to thrive and produce this terrible threat. Even though that is the case, we shouldn't argue that because these earlier interventions and earlier wars were misconceived, we can't do anything now. That's absurd. There's a genuine threat now. You mean and a genuine threat beyond the borders of, of the Middle East? It's beyond the borders of Europe and the West? It's in Europe and it's a threat. And Assad is no threat to the West, no, it's, as you a, it's a threat to Europe, to, uh, uh, to Britain, to Pakistan, to Afghanistan, mm. to Nigeria, to Kenya, to many, many, to Turkey, throughout the world. Whereas Assad is a threat to no one outside the immediate Middle East and, and to numbers of his own citizens. Um, so I think we've got to take this very seriously now and be ready to respond in a coordinated international effort, but one that would go beyond, it would, have to, have to, it would have to go beyond bombing. Bombing doesn't work in and of itself. It can weaken supply lines and destroy infrastructure. So boots work. on the ground? It has to be boots on the ground. And the real question is whether, whether uh, 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 there's the will to do that. Uh, the Obama administration doesn't seem to have much stomach for the job. And also there's the question of, can it work without active co collaboration with the Russians, and I don't think it can. And that has a further geopolitical consequence, which is, can Western intervention work while it is still the policy, in some sense or other, of the United States and the Britain, to unseat Assad? Assad might ultimately be persuaded to go in, uh, in some nonviolent way. Uh, uh, as, as part of some longer negotiated as session. Part of, which would have to include the Russians. Yeah. But the result of toppling Assad, Assad if that won't probably happen now, toppling of and violently would probably be the disintegration of the 
um, Syrian army. Uh, and all of those supporters of Assad who fear for their lives... You mean the minorities? The minorities, the, Alaw- the Alawites, the Druze, the Alawites yeah. in particular, who are under the protection of the um, Assad regime, despite its uh, enormously violent and repressive character. They believe, I would, and I would accept their belief, that their lives would be worth nothing if if the regime collapsed. No. They would flee to Europe. And what you would be left with then in Syria would be uh, an anarchical jihadist killing field with no state at all. That would be catastrophic. So if there is to be uh, military intervention, which I would support uh, against ISIS, and uh, on a large scale, uh, uh, ready to put boots on the ground for a long time, and it's a question whether the will exists for that. If that's to happen, it has to be against a background of changed policies and, uh, a ch- uh, and with a degree of international cooperation that has never so far been achieved. But should Britain act even without some kind of UN authorization um, in alliance with the United States, France, potentially Russia too? Um, what I thought was wrong with the Iraq war wasn't the fact that it was illegal. It was the fact that it was a war that was not necessary and whose predictable consequences were disastrous. Mm. Similarly now, although it's much better to have UN support, and you might get it if there's, of course, there might not be a Russian veto if, if we're really acting, we're acting in concert with them. Um, uh, I don't think it's crucial. And John, while you're here with us, um, it's worth um, segueing into the Labour Party, I think, mm. because you, you wrote an essay in The Statesman in February where, where you predicted that mm. because of the failings of Ed Miliband's mm. leadership, we were entering a, a new era of conservative rule, and, and, and so it has turned out. Now, Laban is led by Jeremy Corbyn, mm. who's an isolationist, a peacenik, possibly a pacifist. Mm. He always argues for negotiated settlements and is mm. opposed to any form of military intervention. Where do you think the Labour Party is at present? It, it seems to me it's, it's the weakest it's, it's been for very many decades, even weaker than it was in the 1980s when it was weak then, but still strong in Scotland. What do you think are the consequences for the Labour Party being led by Jeremy Corbyn? I did um, write that in February of this February, year in yeah. the New Statesman, and but I was also following on from, I'd learned from some of the things you'd written about Ed Miliband that um, uh, had confirmed my own intuitions, which is that the Miliband uh, assumption or, or analysis, according to which what Britain was longing for was a, a move to the left, I, that simply d- seemed to me to be incorrect. What I didn't anticipate, and perhaps no one did, was that by changing the rules of um, the Labour Party and of elections to the Labour Party leadership, the Labour Party membership and elections to the leadership, what Miliband would do as an unintended consequence of that change was to trigger the Corbyn phenomenon. Mm. I don't think any of us anticipated the Corbyn phenomenon. And it's um, uh, left Labour um, not only weaker than it then was, Labour uh, uh, was already, uh, 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 after the last election, in my view, already weaker than it had been in the 80s because it had irreparably lost Scotland. Yes. And the loss of Scotland is fundamental here uh, because Scotland can't be regained because it is now a separate political culture. There is no way that Labour can revive itself there. It's a separate political... And even though at some point, perhaps quite soon even, maybe the uh, SNP will peak and reach some kind of uh, start declining in popularity, unable to deliver or have another problems, what will then happen is it will either factionalise 
or new parties will be created on its left, which are Scottish parties and not parties whose ultimate roots are in London. So um, Labour's lost that, even, even before Corbyn, in other words, Labour. But now it's incomparably weaker even than that, and certainly, as you say, much weaker than in uh, the 1980s, because it's also got crumbling working-class support in some yes. of its traditional bastions, where UKIP uh, is, is strong, and where even maybe the Conservatives may make uh, advances in, 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 in some cases. And... The new lead, Labour leadership, not just Corbyn, but the people, most of the people he surrounded himself by, don't have the political experience that even the um, uh, Michael Foot and others had in the in the 1980s. Those, who, those who stayed in the party and didn't leave to, the, to join the SDP, like Healy, for example. No, Hattersley. No, they they carried on and they were there. They late, were there. They were they were there late. They were there later. They're not going to repeat that mistake again. The trouble is that now Labour is, so to speak alienated um, uh, perhaps 80 or 90 percent of its um, uh, parliamentary uh, leadership of the MPs, alienated maybe 80 percent of the MPs. It's essentially an activist uh, party that doesn't really fit very well into the British political tradition because to be in opposition means you can form another government and you, you have to have a, a parliamentary representation and a shadow cabinet which um, voters would support. They don't have that. Uh, uh, they're essentially much weaker, I share your interview, than they've ever been in my lifetime. Mm. Um, and I can't really see how this weakness can mean anything other than the loss of um, at least one, uh, uh, very likely two, and possibly more general elections. So we're not talking about five years, we're talking probably about 10 or 15 years. Uh, of um, conservative rule, as you as you uh, predicted, as I predicted, as I predicted, even before even before the the rise of of Corbyn, even before the rise of Corbyn, I could did not did not anticipate the rise of Corbyn. But I thought the consequence, even of a narrow Miliband victory, which in February still seemed possible, uh, would have been a short-lived um, Miliband government, which would have suffered so many buffetings. It had so little that was practical and feasible mm. to, to offer on um, economic uh, uh, issues uh, that it would have probably succumbed in six or 12 or 18 months to... Yeah. Particularly to if it was part of a... a, a coalition a, a with, the, coalition uh, with, with the... Yeah, would okay. have, would have succumbed. Okay, John, that, that's terrific. So we've covered um, anarchy, security, <laughs> terror, the state, yes. the Labour Party. Do read um, John Gray's essay in this week's New Statesman. And thanks very much for listening. Thank you. Well, there was plenty for women in the autumn statement. No, of course there wasn't. I'm lying. I'm joined by Anusha Kalian and Barbara Speed just to talk about a couple of announcements that came up. Um, the first one, Anoush, is um, the tampon tax. Now, I'm going to give a rare, small moment of praise for George Osborne for saying the word tampon in the house, which, as we know, Gordon Brown and his time refused to do. Mm. But um, would you like to perhaps give us some of your insight about what might have happened at the meeting where what he did about the tampon tax... Uh, happened. Yeah, well, this is how I imagine they came up with the policy. Guys, says a male special advisor in George Osborne's office as they work late into the night finishing off the spending review. What about, like, women? Hmm. Nods another, finishing off his Byron burger disguised in a McDonald's bag. You're right. We haven't put any women in it. Maybe we should give some extra money to women's charities. I think there are some left. How about it, lads? Moots somebody else, probably a man. Everyone stops what they're doing. Someone removes his tie and solemnly rolls his sleeves up. Money? Where from? Obviously not man money. We need that for proper things. <laughs>, 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 laughs the kind heart who wishes to fund women's charities. 
we'll get women to pay for it themselves. How? They don't have any money to spend because our austerity programme hammering them disproportionately hard. Chorus some treasury bods in the background. Well, they, they pay for those luxurious little cotton thingies. They're always buying those. It's some kind of monthly tax, I think. We could spend that on them. Brilliant! Cries the Chancellor. And the most ridiculous announcement in this year's autumn statement is born. That was, I think I was moving, actually, is what that was. It was a profoundly moving experience. Um, and just to give people the background to this, actually, it was, in fact, a male MP, the wonderfully named Will Quince, mm-hmm. who, um, who came up with the idea. So um, George Osborne announced that there is a 5% VAT on tampons and other women's sanitary products. That can't be changed because of the... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves... Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. EU, boo. Uh, and taken down to zero. So instead, he's going to earmark that money for women's health and domestic violence charities. Now, it's one of those things where I feel like the intention, I think, is really good. Do you think? I sort of think I can see how that came across as being a good thing. But in the end, Anoush, you didn't. You just something about it's just a bit. Urgh. As soon as he announced it, I felt immediately uncomfortable about it, and I tried to think about why. And I think the reason is because it's sort of. I know they already give money to women's charities anyway, but it's almost saying only money raised from women's things can go to women's issues. It's kind of like it's your problem, so you pay for it um, because only women, um, you know. Uh, yes, I think that's the bit that got me is the tax. kind of bit about, you know, you have to pay for it. So you have to pay for this thing that only women have to pay for. And then it has to go to problems that women have. But in the case of, I mean, it wasn't just women's health charities, which I initially thought it was. It's actually domestic violence charities. Yeah. And that's what well, you're going to go like, well, that's not my problem actually that's men's problem like maybe just if men would stop committing domestic violence we wouldn't have to have those shelters it's not women's problem to solve exactly maybe the tax that they collect on men's things like razors or something maybe they should use that to pay for domestic exactly. those bulldog, violence those refuges. weird bulldog yeah. like <laughs> some grooming products that are designed to reassure men that moisturizing is okay yeah um barbara you know there was a there was a donut yesterday as well how did you feel about the donut well it wasn't complete right it was it was like a three quarters donut um, which I suppose is part of his whole thing, right? That like you can kind of do a bit for women. There's like a few women, and there's one one policy for them. And despite the fact that he's created a policy to plug a hole that he created by do you think shutting. People are listening who don't know. I'm, I should say what a donut is for anyone who is not au fait with the delicious confectionery-based metaphors that um, politics uses. The idea that when you um, stand up to make a speech in the house, if you're a male politician, of which there are many, you get a ring of women around you. Um, I think probably the real concern with this dates back to the time that once they end up at PMQs with an all-male Tory front bench and Ed Miliband, quick as a flash with his uh, comedy routine as ever, pointed it out. Uh, and ever since then, obviously, some, it's been the, some unfortunate in CCHQ's job to make sure that there is always a woman in shot every time that uh, either David Cameron or Osborne mm. speaks. Apart from that, though, how how good was this? You know, what else was there for women in this? Well, I suppose the um, s- supposed protection of social care budgets would be good for women because it hits women disproportionately hard um, that there's been so many um, 
cuts and tightening of budgets around those kind of things because they're the ones who are the prime carers. But I don't really think there was anything in there that was particularly wonderful for women. Yeah, and his continued cuts have been proven time and time again to hit women the hardest. And like this, the, I suppose what's particularly insulting about the tampon tax funds being moved across is that he gets to act like he's given women something, whereas in fact he's just taken huge amounts of money from them. And £15 million sounds like a lot, but it is not a lot I know, at I didn't all. know how to explain that to when they were like, and £15 million pounds is a lot yeah. of money. And I was like, well, if yeah, if you gave mm. it to me, it would be yeah. a lot of money. I would, you know, that would be a large person for an individual to have. But in terms of, you know, running a school or a, yeah. a hospital, and it's... We, we did, we covered a Department for Work and Pensions um, advertising scheme, which was basically like a horrible animated monster on television, which I don't believe anyone's actually seen. And they spent £8.5 million on that. And they were like, women two of those we'll give them two of those and it's just it's just so insulting really isn't yeah it? and someone was um someone who took issue with the piece that i wrote about um why the tampon tax announcement was so crass um was saying this is the reason why people are threatened by feminism because you complain about money being given to women's refuges and i just you know i don't think we should be grateful for 15 million pounds a year or whatever it is because it, the reason why domestic abuse shelters and rape shelters and things are under so much pressure is because of cuts yeah. from mm. this chance yeah there was there were figures so. out from women's aid yesterday saying 43 percent of women's shelters don't have funding beyond may 2016 yeah. and that's a, i mean that's not purely as a result of the cuts that's a result of lots of the general trend towards things like outsourcing so councils will now run everything on you know quick turnovers you're under a lot of pressure if you're a specialist provider to compete with big generic outsourcing firms mm. that have got lower you know because they've got big central management warehouses they've got lower overheads there so yeah there is it's a really difficult climate i think that is probably really actually that what i, I it felt like the consolation prize mm. yeah on top yeah. of a big cake made of poo and like they've, they've shot about 30 haven't they in the past four years women's refuges which yeah. is 15 million is not no, it's, it, it is really tough. Okay, well, that's good. Well, we've, yeah, <laughs> we're all good. screwed. <laughs> <laughs> On that um, dispiriting note, thank you, Barbara and Anoush. <laughs> and now we're bringing back, especially by great listener demand, uh, a segment we like to call Stephen's Joke of the Week. So there are a lot of different views about the tampon tax. I actually quite like, uh, like that section because it's actually given us a whole new... Um, sheath, as it were. Sheath is not the right word. Um, uh, the joke of the week is going badly already. Um, a whole new range of euphemisms um, for um, for that time of the month. Because George Osborne, in a moment which I'm sure made sense in the office, compared people's periods to the LIBOR rate-rigging scandal, uh, which is when bankers... Um, effectively just lied about uh, the seaworthiness of their banks, which is brilliant because it now means that I instead you of just... seaworthiness then. <laughs> it's like you're really working this in. in, in instead of... Um... Instead of like uh, saying, "Oh, is the is the red knight seeking lodgings?" You can now have, "Oh, are the bankers lying about their Mifid two requirements?" Oh, <laughs> is the AAA rating at threat? You know, like, oh. Are you separating retail from investment <laughs> sectors? It's a whole new world of innuendo. So I say, thank you, George Osborne. <laughs> You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.